God, we do pray for our neighbors who live around this church building and property and pray that this Christmas, as they see us come and go throughout the week, maybe particularly on Sundays, that you would help our joy and our commitment to do this, to speak to them. I pray that our love for you and for one another would show them what your covenant faithful love looks like. And not just these neighbors, this week we want to pray for each and every person that we'll come in contact with. Help, them, help us to love them in the way that we've been loved. I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, lift up Christ for us this morning. Help us to see your covenant redeeming love in Ruth chapter 3. Help us to see your kindness toward those of us, all of us, who have turned from you, who have rebelled from you. Holy Spirit, we rely upon you. We look to you. We pray that you would lift up Christ for us in his name. Amen. The story that's told so well through the book of Ruth happens at the same time as the judges. And it was a rough time in Israel's history. The book of Judges records this difficult time in Israel's history. And honestly, it's a hellish time. It's a time that's filled with foolishness and idolatry and great evil done not just by God's enemies, but also God's people. The summary that stands above the book of Judges gives a sober warning. In those days, we read over and over again, in those days there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And we'll see in the book of Judges, or if you read through the book of Judges, you'll see quickly that God's people are worshiping other, other gods, God's leaders are lacking moral resolve, women are horribly mistreated, God's people are tormented and oppressed by their enemies, and the nation is bitterly divided. In those days, there was no king in Israel, the people did what was right, what seemed right, in their own eyes. And tell me if that doesn't uh, feel all that different from our context. But while everyone else in Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes, Boaz and Ruth obeyed the Lord. God is their reference point. God is the one that Ruth and Boaz are longing to delight. And that creates, as we'll see, an oasis and a refuge around them. Their neighbors can see their beautiful righteousness like brilliant warm light warming the cold ground. Their righteousness is creating a refuge where their neighbors can taste and see the Lord's goodness and His kindness. And it's a far cry from what's happening all around them in the land of Israel. And all the while, all the while this is happening, God works to preserve His redemptive purposes in history in astounding ways using a foreign Moabite young widow and a middle-aged bachelor from the backward town of Bethlehem. Life in a world polluted by sin and darkness is filled to the brim with struggles with sin and suffering. The question is, how do we respond to the obstacles in our lives in a fallen world? How do we respond to God in the world when we're tempted to do what is right in our own eyes? The main idea this morning is simple. Obey God's ways and behold God's work. Obey God's way, behold God's work. In verses 1 through 5, we read of a daring scheme of Naomi. 
Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, sees that the harvest season is wrapping up, and she longs to provide Ruth with some permanent protection and provision. Look at verse 1 of Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Naomi's stated purpose is to find rest for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi uses this same word, Manoah, that's the Hebrew word, in chapter 1 when she urges Ruth to stay in Moab so she can find rest in the home of a husband. Ruth 1 verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of a husband. This is hard to do without a husband in their culture. The word Manoah means a place of rest or security. That's what Naomi longs for Ruth. Boaz has been wonderful and kind and generous during harvest season, but harvest season is about to end, and Ruth has still not found this rest, this Manoah, this security that Naomi has longed for. Now, Naomi may also be longing for other things. She may also be longing for an heir for her dead husband and her dead sons, but that's not mentioned here, and it's not mentioned in this chapter at all. Though by next week, we'll see that God's law related to this topic seems to be on everyone's mind. But for now, Naomi is concerned and intent to find rest for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she has a plan. Look at verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Ruth's urgency is rooted in the fact that harvest is coming to an end. She knows that Boaz will soon be winnowing at the threshing floor. And again, since we don't have any farmers and harvesters from 1000 BC, let's remind ourselves about the harvesting process. The end of the harvest included two steps. The first was to thresh the wheat. It was to use to separate the husk from the grain by beating it with a particular instrument or by using cattle hooves. If you go down to Mount Vernon, you can see George Washington's threshing barn that used horse hooves. But after the grain was threshed, it needed to be winnowed. And to do that, they used a special fork to throw the grain up in the air so that the husk would blow away and the grain would fall to the ground. And so Naomi has heard that Boaz will be at the threshing floor tonight, threshing and winnowing his grain. D.A. Carson tells us that the threshing floor outside of Bethlehem was a flat, large, open space of either exposed bedrock or hardened clay. And it's east and south of town so that the prevailing winds can blow away the husks and allow the harvesters to finish the harvesting process. Now, the question is, what does all this have to do with Ruth? The fact that Boaz is at the threshing floor. Look at verses 3 and 4. Naomi says to Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you are to do. Naomi's strategy is for Ruth to wash, anoint herself with perfume and to put on her best clothes. Now, she's probably signaling, we don't know, but she's probably signaling that her mourning season is over and she's open to marriage again. And Boaz, because of who he is, may need help understanding where Ruth is in this process. He's not going to force himself on a young wood widow. 
Now, once she's dressed, Ruth is supposed to go down to the threshing floor, but be subtle. Don't let anybody know that you're there. And wait till Boaz is finished eating and drinking, and then take notice of where he lies down for the night. And when he lies down, go to where he's lying, uncover his feet, and lie down. And then Boaz will tell you what to do from there. And this is a daring scheme. It's daring in the first place because it's dark and secluded. It's not city dark, it's rural farmland dark. And remember in chapter 2, Boaz and Naomi are concerned that Ruth may be mistreated even in broad daylight by the men who are working in the field. And now Naomi is sending her in the middle of the night once the workers have eaten and drink and lay down to sleep. And to make matters worse, the threshing floor was a common place for prostitutes to go. So if Ruth is discovered by others, or if she is rejected somehow by Boaz, her reputation will be unrecoverably tarnished. This is a daring scheme. But Naomi wants Ruth to put her reputation on the line for one Hail Mary pass to Boaz. This is the the very last exit on the freeway, and they put all their chips in. Look at verse 5. And Ruth replied to Naomi, all that you say I will do. Ruth is all in, and we're not surprised. This bold, risk-assuming young woman is built of different stuff than the people around her, and the people of Bethlehem have seen this already. She is devoted, and she is courageous, and the reader is left with bated breath and with curled-up toes, anticipating what's going to happen next in this story. In verses 6 through 9, we read of Ruth's bold proposal. Look at verses 6 and 7. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Ruth runs the play exactly as Naomi had called it. She watches from the shadows as Boaz eats and drinks and celebrates. She watches from the shadows as with a merry heart, Boaz goes to the end of the grain and lies down and falls asleep. Now, we know enough of Boaz at this point to know that he's not a glutton. He's not, like, he's not passed out like Noah or Lot. He's led his employees through a difficult harvest season, a long harvest season, and they've just celebrated God's provision. And he lies down happy. He's satisfied after sweating well in God's creation. It's a job well done. And he lays down with the food and the wine, having gladdened his heart in the moment. Now, Ruth watches where Boaz lies down. And she goes to him, she uncovers his feet, and she lies down there. Now, this is weird. This is weird. But the question is, is it more than weird? The question that's often posed is whether the narrator is somehow using innuendo to suggest some sort of advance by Ruth. Now, it is true that the words for feet and uncover can be stretched to be suggestive. But must they mean that? Not at all. There are two reasons I think we should safely assume that Ruth and Boaz are above reproach. The first is in Boaz's response to Ruth, which we'll see in a few minutes. It's a godly blessing. It just doesn't fit the moment if we're to understand a sexual encounter. The second is that 
any, is there anything that we've seen so far in this story that would suggest in the character of Ruth and Boaz that something like this is possible? That would cause us to think that Ruth is making a proposition to Boaz and that Boaz would accept such a proposition. I don't see anything in this story that would lead us to that conclusion and would therefore force us to take what can be stretched into the meaning of these words. So then what is Ruth doing here? What exactly is going on? It seems to be just what the text says. She lays down at his feet, she uncovers them, and then she lays down. She's going to let the breeze from the threshing floor gently wake him up in a less startling way, and that's exactly what happens in verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. You know when someone steals the covers from you and you have this feeling and you wake up in the middle of the night. He's startled awake and behold, he sees a woman lying at his feet. Now, he probably assumes that this woman is a prostitute. But even in his half-awake state, Boaz is disciplined for righteousness. And the reader is warned to build holy habits and to be prepared. Because life and temptation can sometimes come at us so quickly, we don't have time in the moment to be prepared. Before temptation comes, we need to play a good offense. We need to fan the flame in our heart for an expansive view of God so that our offense makes our defense less necessary. Notice Ruth's response to Boaz in verse 9. Boaz said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are my redeemer. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. Now, in chapter 2, verse 12, we heard Boaz pronounce a blessing over Ruth, and he wanted her to take refuge in God, to let God's wings spread over her, that she might, for her faith, and for her righteousness, that God might reward her by being a place of refuge for her. Boaz, be God's answer to your own prayer. Spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. It's a wise response from Ruth. And this is also a marriage proposal. And it's a bold one. This Moabite young widow has nothing to offer to Boaz. Yet she asks this distinguished as we'll see, probably older Israelite man of great wealth and great standing to marry her, to spread his wings over her, to be a redeemer, to take responsibility for her. Her reason? For you are a redeemer. The Hebrew word here is goel. It means deliverer or redeemer. And we saw last week what some of those responsibilities were for a Hebrew kinsman family redeemer. If family was lost out of the family, the Redeemer would purchase it back. If a family member was sold into slavery, the Redeemer would purchase that family member back. If a family member was murdered, the Redeemer would track down and execute the murderer. If some sort of justice needed to be done for a dead family member, the Redeemer would ensure that justice was done. And God's heart is on display in these laws about kinsmen redeemers. God values human life, and God values the property, the land of God's people. And so God cares when God's people, when their lives are mistreated or when their property is taken. 
And so he gives these laws about kinsmen redeemers. But the other aspect of God's law that seems to be at play in this story is that of Levite marriage. And in Levite marriage, a childless widow, a widow whose husband dies before she's been able to bear children, is able to ask her dead husband's brother to bear a child on behalf of his dead brother. And so the man's name and property can be preserved. And what we seem to see in Ruth is some sort of adaptation and application of those two laws taking place between Boaz and Ruth. And they're going to go beyond the letter of God's law for the sake of love. Now, that's the bold proposal. What's Boaz's response? Look at verse 10. And he said, Boaz... Ruth, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz's response is stunning. May God bless you, my daughter. Now, why is Boaz moved by Ruth's actions and not creeped out? Why why is he moved to bless her for what she's done here? He says, Ruth, you've made this last kindness, Hesed. You've made this last kindness, this last covenant faithfulness of yours is even greater than the first. Ruth, what you've done to me this night is even better than the kindness, the Hesed that you've showed to Naomi. Now, why does he say that? Because you could have gone after a young man, whether rich or poor. He's implying here that he is not a young man that he is an older man, and instead you've approached me when you could have gone after a younger man. She's pursuing him in particular. There's a weight and intentionality to what is informing this bold proposal. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Boaz's Godward response, what comes flying out of his heart in this moment at midnight, reinforces that this is not a sexual encounter. Would he pronounce this blessing if he were about to engage a proposition? And would he pronounce a blessing on Ruth Ruth, if he believed that she was making a proposition? No. No, something beautiful transpires here between Ruth and Boaz. Something that we, 3,000 years later, in a very different culture, at a very different time, may not fully understand. But there is something gripping that is happening between them in this moment. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Daughter, my daughter, do not fear being here. Because all of my townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That word for worthy we saw last week, it's the word that the narrator used to describe Boaz. He was a worthy man. Boaz uses that same word now to describe Ruth. The CSB version, the Christian Standard Bible version, translates that word worthy as prominent and of noble character. But this isn't just Boaz's opinion. This is Ruth's reputation. This is what all of Bethlehem knows to be true about this young Moabite woman. Ruth, all of Bethlehem thinks of you as a worthy woman. There's no reason for you to fear as you lie here tonight. 
All of Bethlehem knows that like Boaz, Ruth is a person of strength, of moral worth, of gravitas, of standing. There's even a sense of military might mixed in with this word. She's a person who is respected and relied upon and admired, a person with impeccable character, discerning and wise, sought after, takes initiative, presses toward hard things. We've begun to see this about Ruth already. And now, Ruth, to your question. Verse 12. And now, Ruth, it is true that I am a redeemer, that I'm that word goel. It is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. It is true that I'm a redeemer, but there's one who's closer even than me. Boaz is somehow decisive without being impulsive. He knows that God's law provides an order to these things, that it starts with a brother and moves to an uncle or a cousin and then to a close relative like we might assume Boaz is. And Boaz is to content to obey God's way. He's not carried along by the passion of the moment. He is constrained and happily so by God's word. He's not afraid he's going to miss something by obeying God's way. That somehow he's going to be angled out of something that he may long for just because he's being obedient to God's way. No, he's constrained and he's content and he is decisive. I'll do it, but there's someone closer. He doesn't believe that obedience to God's law is in any way threatening or suffocating to joy. And so he's able to rest underneath it. Look at verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he, that closer redeemer, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, Ruth, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Remain where you are tonight and in the morning, if he'll redeem you, fine. If not, I will do it as the Lord lives. I will serve this role for you. The word that he uses here is not a euphemism. To lie down here means to lodge. It's the same word that Ruth uses in chapter 1 to say, Naomi, wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Wherever you go, I will go. That's the word that Boaz uses. And notice that he's not frozen with indecision. He's not waiting for a special word from the Lord. God has already spoken in his word about the role of a kinsman redeemer. He's already revealed his heart and his values to Boaz. He's revealed the principles by which Boaz can live. So he's asking in this moment, what does God's word require of me? What has God said? I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to do that. Boaz has hidden God's word in his heart. Boaz knows what righteousness is and he commits to do the godly thing. He doesn't drag his feet waffling back and forth. He knows God's way and he takes that path. And there's a good lesson for the reader. What has God said in his word? In the middle of that obstacle you found, find yourself in, what has God said in his word? Do that thing. Not because it gets you into a right relationship with him. No, the righteousness of God's people is how we live as his people, not how we become his people. We become his people through the work of Christ. We live as his people through works of righteousness, not to, delight, not to be accepted by him, but to delight his heart. And so in verses 14 and 15, we read this. She lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known 
that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So, he held it, so she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Most commentators say that this is a hilarious amount of grain that he's given her. It's almost that Boaz, with a smile, is heaping this grain on her shoulders as if to say to her mother-in-law, I see what you're doing. Everything's under control. And she carries this six measures of barley home to Naomi. And what we find in verses 16 to 18 is a nervous wait. Look at verse 16 through 18. And when she came to her mother-in-law, who was surely had a fitful night's sleep and is anxious to know what has happened in the middle of the night, verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. Ruth, how did it go? And she shows her the six measures of barley, and Naomi's immediate response is, wait, he will not rest until he settles the matter today. Naomi and Ruth have done their part. It's a daring scheme, it's a bold proposal, and now they are waiting on Boaz, their family redeemer, to respond. They have a need in their culture, in their time. Naomi's husband and only two sons are dead. And all she has left is a widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. And on top of the grief, they have no property. There is no way for them to support themselves with no living children. And so they ask Boaz to step in. And then they wait to see how he will settle the matter with the elders of Bethlehem. Now, what the text is saying seems clear enough. What we are supposed to do with this text, I think, takes a little bit more work. Here are the two themes that seem to converge in and emerge out of Ruth chapter 3. Obey God's way, behold God's work. First, obey God's way. The righteousness of Boaz and Ruth are a theme throughout this short story, but they seem to be bolded and underlined and italicized in Ruth chapter 3. They are seen to obey God's ways. Their generation of Israelites all around them, recorded in the book of Judges, are doing what is right in their own eyes. And by contrast, you have this man and this woman who are seeking to be faithful to God. Sin and foolishness and idolatry run rampant and wild all over Israel, and God's people are literally bringing hell on earth. But not these two. These two are captured by God's heart. God is their referent point. God's word is their guide. God's way becomes the path on which they walk. And that creates a place of blessing and shelter. They reveal to the people around them what God is like. The people of Bethlehem can ask the question, what is Yahweh like? What is God like? And they can look at Ruth and they can look at Boaz and they can see what covenant faithful love looks like, what shape it takes. Contrary to popular opinion, righteousness is not lame. 
It's not old-fashioned. It's not stuffy. It's not restrictive. Righteousness is a way of living as created human beings in exactly the way that the Creator designed for us to live. We have the instruction manual in the Bible that tells us how to thrive as His people, even how to thrive in a world that has been broken by sin. Therefore, God's people can be the happiest, loudest enjoyers of God's creation. We can be the most satisfied in relationships. We can be most, the most fulfilled in our work. We can be the most content as we face illness and death. Our worship and adoration is fixed upon God. Our relationship with Him is grounded in Christ. Our security rests in Him, not in our obedience. But our righteousness is a way that we can enjoy Him and one another and life, even life in a fallen world. Lame, boring, old-fashioned, restrictive, could not be further from the truth. There is no better way to live, and God's people can sprint and laugh all the way, compelled by God's beauty, captured by an eternity with Him. And for however many days we walk this earth, we seek to glorify Him. We seek to love Him with all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our bodies, all of our hearts. And we seek to love others as we love ourselves. In other words, we burn our ships in the harbor and we set out wholly for a life with Him. We forsake doing what is right in our own eyes. We see the folly of that and we see the peril in that. And instead we pursue God's way. We pursue God's path. We obey God's way not out of fear of judgment, but out of our joy and delight in Him. Why did Jesus come? He came to set his people free. He came to save his people from their sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And having been saved by Jesus, we turn and we live. We live lives of worshipful obedience, bringing glory to God and loving one another. Obey God's way. The second theme is to behold God's work. Ruth and Naomi end this chapter waiting to see how Boaz will close the deal. So much of our lives are spent waiting on God to break through obstacles that we face living in a world that's been broken by sin. Obstacles in our circumstances, obstacles in our relationships. So much of our lives are waiting for Jesus to return to finish what he began at his first coming. We spend so much time waiting and Ruth is an invitation to not only obey God's way, but to behold his work. As readers of Ruth's story, we see where Ruth's story is headed. And so would you be willing to view your life in the same way? Would you be willing to be Ruth and Boaz? We have a God who's writing our story and sometimes his work is mysterious and confusing, but it is always faithful. So would you be willing to look at your circumstances from two vantage points? Because yes, you are Boaz, and yes, you are Ruth, and yes, God is writing a story. But you can see your story not just from Ruth and Boaz's vantage point. You can see your story from the vantage point of the reader and the narrator. 
God has told you in the Bible about your past sinful condition and your need for salvation in Christ. He has told you much in the Bible about your present suffering with sin and struggles and our life together as His church. He has told you much in His Word about your future home with Christ, experiencing the rest and security we long for. We know much about Ruth's story because we're stepping back and we're viewing it through the eyes of the reader. We know so much more than Ruth and Boaz know about what God is doing and how God is providing. Brothers and sisters, we can look at our stories from both vantage points. We can be Ruth and Boaz and have confidence that God is at work, and we can step back and use the Bible for a wide-angle lens to see what God is doing in our lives, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do in the future. Isn't it rest and security and provision that Naomi is desperate for Ruth to find? And isn't it the promise of rest and security and provision that Boaz has promised for Ruth, either to secure it in the Redeemer who's closer or to do it himself? If you are in Christ, you are depending upon Him, trusting Him, hoping in Him, then you have been promised rest. Behold the work of God in your life, delivering you through trials into glory. Behold, that is, gaze with worship and with awe what He is doing in your life for your good and for His fame. Obey God's way, behold God's work. That's what Ruth and Boaz and Naomi are called to do in this story. You are facing obstacles. You are facing trials and hardships. You are also facing tremendous blessings and reason for joy. Our assignment in every easy and every difficult thing is to obey God's way and behold God's work. We do not obey and behold to gain His favor or to maintain His acceptance. We obey and behold to enjoy Him. And we obey and behold to love others well. So what is the point of obedience for you in light of the obstacles you're facing? What is God's Word calling you to in this moment? And what does it look for for you to behold the work of God in your life, to be reminded that He is working in all the just-so-happens of our lives for His glory and for our good? In a world that is committed to doing what is right in their own eyes because they have no king, we have a king, and we can behold our king's work, and we can obey our king's way, and we can, by His grace, pursue Him together. He is the hope of all the earth. He is the desire of every nation. He is the joy of every longing heart. Come, Lord Jesus, and fix what you've begun. Finish what you've begun. And until then, help us to walk faithfully with you. Let's pray and let's worship him together. Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning. We look to you for redemption. We turn to you. We're grateful for all that you've done to make it possible for us to be restored to our Father. Holy Spirit, help us as we worship you now. Strengthen our hearts. Help us to see Christ with clarity. We pray these things in his name. Amen.